Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books in Law, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Nicola Lacey. Nicola is a school professor of law, gender, and social policy at the London School of Economics. In addition to other positions she's held at Harvard and Oxford, she's also the recipient of a number of prestigious accolades, including, most recently, she was awarded a CBE for her services to law, justice, and gender politics. Now, for North American listeners, a CBE stands for the Commander of the Order of the British Empire. It is the highest-ranking order of the British Empire Award. It is awarded to recognise the positive impact made by a person in their work. So we're very privileged to have Nicola speaking to us today. Now, coincidentally, Nicola was awarded her CBE in the year after her book that we're here to talk about today. Um, It was published by Oxford University Press 2016. And Nicola's latest book is In Search of Criminal Responsibility, Ideas, Interests and Institutions. Nicola Lacey, thank you for taking the time to speak to me today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Oh, the pleasure's all mine, believe me. Um, Now, can you begin by telling me a little bit about yourself and uh, your work and also how you came to write In Search of Criminal Responsibility, Ideas, Interests and Institutions? Yes, yes, of course. So um, I'm in terms of my substantive legal scholarship, criminal law has really always been my main field, although I've done lots of different things, feminist theory, uh, biography, um, but criminal law is really my substantive field and remains my main interest. And um, in the uh, early 90s, I was very interested in the critical legal studies movement, and I was very much involved in working with other scholars like uh, Celia Wells and Alan Norrie in developing uh, sort of critical approaches to criminal law. In other words, approaches that really tried to understand not just how the rules fitted together, but really the sort of broader forces that shape them and perhaps shape their interpretation in ways that are less obvious uh, than those uh, usually the subject of sort of, let's say, a standard criminal law textbook. And um, we were, Alan and Celia and I were all involved in, in writing sort of critical textbooks. Um, but as I went on with that work, I, I, I and I moved, um, that, that I, I wrote that book with Celia when I was working in Oxford, and I moved to Birkbeck College in London for a couple of years, and I was working with a very interesting uh, criminal law scholar called Lindsay Farmer, who was very interested in legal history. And I started to think that looking at the historical development of legal ideas was a really, really useful way of getting a a sort of constructively critical perspective on um, how legal concepts, doctrines, rules, arrangements and protocols relate to broader social, economic and political ideas and institutions. Um, So I started working really on some of the historical materials on criminal law, some of the classic things like Blackstone's commentaries, 
Um, and in the late 90s, I published a piece which in a way is the fountain of all the work on this area that has come since, um, which really compared Blackstone's commentaries, uh, James Fitzjames Stevens' famous code of criminal law at the end of the 19th century. So Blackstone's commentaries were in the middle of the 18th century, uh, uh, Stephen in the middle to late 19th century, and then Glanville Williams's very famous textbook of criminal law, first published in the 1950s, called Criminal Law: The General Part. And what I, you could really see by juxtaposing those three 18th, 19th, and 20th century uh, influential commentaries or codes was that the fundamental structure of the way we thought about the organization of criminal law had changed. And that whereas by the time Williams was writing in the 1950s, uh, he never got round to writing the second volume of his book, which would have been on the special part, in other words, the criminal offenses, um, because it, it, it really the whole weight of uh, legitimation of criminal law seemed to have turned on the so-called general part, in other words, the principles of conduct and responsibility and fault and defense, which had really become the main preoccupation of criminal legal scholarship, whereas for Blackstone, those weren't important at all. And that initial historical work just, just really fed, fed my interest in, in how, uh, how criminal law had developed. And in, in particular, um, started to feed into my uh, development of what I would call a sort of institutional approach to criminal law scholarship. In other words, tr trying to get away from the idea, which I think has affected some critical legal scholarship as much as say, traditional doctrinal legal scholarship, trying to get away from the idea that criminal law is, or law in general, is all about rules and doctrines. Um, I wanted to suggest instead that the way in which those rules and doctrines and principles and understandings are embedded in institutions like the trial, like uh, the judiciary, the magistracy, uh, the the way prosecution is organized, all these different components of a criminal justice system, indeed of a legal system, the way the rules are institutionalized in those, um, in those systems is hugely important to the way they develop and the role which they play in society. And in turn, those institutions are, of course, shaped by the distribution of interests and power. And so that's really where the, the, the title of my book came from, Ideas, Interests and Institutions. I wanted to come up with an account of, of criminal law, which tried to put, the, the, if I can put it in this way, the co-evolution of those three layers of legal reality together. And if I can just um, illustrate with one very brief, uh, yes, brief point, do. and I'll stop and let you ask no, another, no. <laughs> another question. Just to, to make this point about uh, institutions, um, we think today, even though we know that a contested criminal trial is actually a very rare event, most, most countries, the vast majority of criminal cases are heard in summary forms of justice or result in a guilty plea. But we still somehow think of very often that the, the, the contested trial in some systems with a jury as a trial of fact, as, as the sort of acme of what it is to, to, um, to, to test 
the veracity of a criminal case, the justification of a criminal case. And that takes place, of course, within a framework of a very elaborate set of rules of evidence and procedure. Um, but if you happen to know, as legal historians have, uh, have worked out from court records, that the average length of a criminal trial, a felony trial, uh, in the late 18th century inter-criminal justice system was something like 20 minutes. You have to ask yourself whether the institution that was delivering that 18th century standard felony trial was anything like the same kind of institution uh, that we have today, whether it was really an institution that was anyway equipped or designed to investigate guilt in the sense of mens rea as well as actus res in the way that we've set up the criminal trial in the 20th century. So really basic things like, you know, who's hearing the criminal case? How long does it take? Uh, what rules of evidence are there become incredibly important to the whole meaning and significance of, of uh, criminal law or indeed any other kind of law. Yeah, thank you. I think that's really interesting because, um, as you say, one of the key ideas in your book is looking at um, how interests shape the notion of responsibility. Um, and you do give this historical context. Um, so because we do in our analysis, you know, especially, you know, in law school as a junior lawyer, you learn to kind of do doctrinal analysis. But I think what you're arguing is that actually – there are these other influences on doctrines um, and on the legal system, which, you know, uh, we don't necessarily take into account when we're reading law on the books, as you describe it. Um, that, that's right. Um, so what I'm interested in in terms of the institutions is can you elaborate a little bit more on the types of institutions that do shape the criminal law and especially the notion of responsibility um, and how, like, how do you, you say that they have, how have they changed responsibility? Well, um, I think the, my, my, my core idea is that responsibility is doing a sort of, in a way, a practical task within criminal law. It is, in a sense, um, legitimating the criminal justice system. It's the, it's the thing that we appeal to to explain why the imposition of penal power is, is justified rather than simply uh, you know, an exertion of, of force. Um, but the way in which we think about uh, what form of responsibility is appropriate has changed over time and that is shaped partly by institutions, but partly by ideas as well. So perhaps it's important to start with the, the argument in the book that um, there are actually three or possibly four quite different ways of thinking about responsibility that arise within uh, the history of English criminal law, and I think we could find the same in quite a number of systems. Um, there's the idea that responsibility in some sense uh, reflects uh, an expression of uh, capacity in the sense that uh, an agent, the defendant, has acted with the relevant uh, understanding and powers of self-control. That's perhaps the most familiar form of responsibility as we think about it today. 
Um, there's, I think, more prominence in the 18th century, but perhaps having a bit of a revival today, the idea that when we talk about holding people responsible, what we're really talking about is something about the quality of their character or the quality of their action. It's a kind of evaluation of uh, it's sort of quasi-moral evaluation of character. Um, thirdly, we think about responsibility in terms of our relationship with things that we cause, outcomes that we cause. Um, so I might uh, accidentally cause somebody harm, and that we might think of as a different form of responsibility from intentional responsibility. But nonetheless, we would uh, negatively evaluate somebody who simply shrugged their shoulders and said, I had nothing to do with it because it was an accident. Um, and then sometimes we think about responsibility as, as founded in somebody presenting a risk of a certain kind, as in um, concepts of dangerousness, for example. And my argument in the book is that all of those ideas of responsibility have been influential at different times in the history of English criminal law. There are more than one at play, but their balance changes. And what uh, changes that balance, what affects that balance is, first of all, culture, in other words, the, the shape of broader ideas about human beings and what makes them tick and what makes them accountable to each other and their relationship with the state. Secondly, interest, and perhaps all power, and we'll perhaps come back to that. But thirdly, institutions, you asked me specifically about institutions, and I would say you could start slow criminal process, the institutional arrangements, the institutional arrangements, the legal profession. We have to remember that the, the, the legal profession organized uh, in, in the modern, centralized, very regulated way that we have today is basically a 19th century invention. And of course, there were sort of professional organizations before that, but there was nothing like the organization uh, developed with professional associations in the 1970s protocols about what the obligations are of a lawyer, a defense lawyer, say, to not only their client, but also the court and implicitly the state or the system uh, are hugely developing uh, and are expressed through institutional arrangements uh, like you know, the organization of courts, the distribution of personnel and so on. Um, and what we're seeing in the 19th century in the English system is, is a tremendous uh, centralization and professionalization and station of criminal justice, uh, a, a, a huge uh, increase in the intensity of, of the rules of evidence, uh, but lots of reorganization and sort of professionalization of, of personnel. Um, and that that. I argue in the book uh, with lots of examples is is very very important to to the way uh, the way the system develops. Yeah, thank you. That's um, also again really interesting. And so, I think what you argue in the book is that, um, and as you just said, capacity is one of the primary ways now that uh, 
mens rea is judged, um, but there is being a revival in the ideas of character and risk, especially um, in terms of how responsibility is attributed. Can you talk a little bit more about how this is happening, please? Yeah, so I, I mean, my, my, most of my examples in the book are from the English system, and, and it's interesting to know how how that compares with other systems. But um, what we've seen definitely over the last 20 years or so, um, which has attracted quite a lot of critical comment, is is the revival of a certain kind of, as we might put it, preventive justice or set of what we might call hybrid arrangements. Um, so examples would be, um, obviously, there has always been some sort of preventive uh, impulse in English criminal law, we've always had inchoate offences like attempt. We have very long-standing uh, things like the offence of breach of the peace, uh, which is a sort of preventive offence. We have various offences like possession offences. So it's not that there hasn't been preventive justice always in, in the English system. But um, in a number of areas, there's been a real intensification of these sorts of offences. So terrorism would be uh, the most obvious example where we have now have uh, offences of preparation which push the boundaries of criminal liability way back before, much earlier than the law of attempt, for example, would already have taken them. Uh, we have uh, many offences that have to do with membership. So these sort of offences that take group membership or association as a sort of proxy for dangerousness. So there has been uh, an efflorescence of what you might call pre-inchoate offences. Um, on top of that, we've had the development and massive proliferation of hybrid orders, so-called preventive orders, um, of which the, the most famous no longer uh, exists anymore, uh, but it's a good example, the antisocial behavior order. This was the first one. Um, and the antisocial behavior order was something uh, that it was essentially a civil order that something like a local authority could apply for if uh, they had, let's say, a young person being disruptive on, on a housing estate or something of that nature. Um, and it was just a civil order, civil standard of proof, uh, no, you know, no, no criminal uh, procedural safeguards. But in effect, the breach of an antisocial behaviour order was a criminal offence. And so this was a sort of hybrid criminal civil offence. And we now have literally dozens and dozens and dozens of these. We have... Um, forced marriage prevention orders, we have park restriction prevention orders, we have alcohol use prevention orders. And essentially what this has done is to, uh, m again, move forward in time, or rather move back in time, the boundaries of criminal liability, but to do so in a patterned way uh, based on um, what you might call a kind of character risk hybrid pattern of responsibility attribution. In other words, you particularly target in the way these offences are structured uh, forms of association or group or activity which you associate with a certain kind of risk. And one of the worries, of course, in, a, in, a, in any um, system that is 
ostensibly committed to a sort of the rule of law and equality before the law is whether these these sorts of uh, offences either in practice or possibly even in design actually disproportionately target certain sectors of the population. Yeah, no, um, um, and I think that relates to your argument in the book about um, how responsibility and this kind of notion of responsibility, especially in relation to, I think, character and this increase in uh, assessing responsibility in terms of risk. Um, It relates to how um, responsibility is kind of used as a mechanism of social control um, and, sorry, and uh, coordinating social behaviour, I think, is how you describe it. Can you talk a little about what you mean about by that? Yes, absolutely. So, um, so I think one of the other things that's probably quite an important implicit feature of my book, which is different from many works of criminal law theory, if I can put it that way, is that I don't really see the criminal law as a sort of heavily moralized uh, mechanism of social regulation. I see it more in terms of um, a system of coordination of uh, facilitating peaceful coexistence. I don't see it as a sort of subset of personal morality. Of course, uh, I accept as anybody sensible has to that there is an overlap, in fact, between rules of the criminal law system and certain important moral norms like uh, norms against about honesty and physical integrity and so on. But uh, I don't see criminal law as a sort of quasi-moral system. And so I see the responsibility principle, which has become so central to the way we think about criminal law, uh, in terms not merely of uh, being a mechanism that helps to legitimate the criminal law to explain why it's a a fair and a legitimate system, uh, insofar as it is, um, but uh, also, importantly, to... um, coordinate uh, the expectations of both actors in society and officials in the criminal justice system as to what sorts of criteria have to be brought into play before somebody can legitimately be uh, convicted of a criminal offence. So responsibility principles have these two rather different functions in my account. They're, they're, They're legitimating, they're sending a message about what justifies the state's action, but they're also sending um, coordinating messages to actors within the process, both lay actors and officials, about what criteria have to be met in order for the coordinating power of criminal law legitimately to be invoked. Yeah, and so coming back to that point about legitimating the power of the state, how how do you see criminal law doing this? Um, well, in an ideal world, it would be doing it by um, uh, setting up fair, even-handedly applied um, principles, uh, sorry, uh, arrangements which uh, facilitate peaceful coexistence and good coordination. And I've got a lot of sympathy with some of the scholars who have argued, for example, Vincent Chow in a, a book last year called Criminal Law in the Modern Administrative State, which is a really excellent book, uh, argues that um, 
you know, there is no ultimate normative justification for criminal law. The justification for criminal law is ultimately dependent on the justification for the state uh, which the criminal of which the criminal law is a very key part. So um, I don't in the book can I this is you know another chapter. I don't go into uh, a very uh, normative justification for any particular criminal law system. And I certainly don't make the assumption that any um, that all criminal law systems, even the English one, are in fact justified. Certainly not in all of their in all of their um, in all of their aspects. But I do think essentially that the the role of criminal law that potentially justifies it is this role in coordinating peaceful coexistence and protecting important shared and individual interests. Thank you. Um, and I think one of the arguments you make in this context is that the criminal law itself is politicised um, in this, especially with the rise of democracy. Um, yeah. So, yeah. That governments do have to yeah, answer. Yes, so I mean, to... the rise of democracy mm. and those political institutions are themselves a very important part of the, the um, yeah, the institutional context in which the criminal modern criminal law develops. Yeah, and um, also in terms of you talk a, a bit about um, how the modern criminal law has developed and it's how it's changed, especially um, in the last century. And the concepts of mens rea in relation to, because of the growth of like medical and psychological and psychiatric um, knowledge as well. And can you talk a little bit about how this has influenced the notion of responsibility and also ideas of personhood and mens rea and how these relate? Yes, but yes, I think that that was one of the very big um, sort of intellectual, cultural, as well as of course institutional changes because of course. Uh, just as the legal system was professionalizing and centralizing in in the 19th century, so was the, the medical profession emerging and forms of what we would now call psychiatric medicine beginning to emerge as distinct specialisms within that broad, you know, uh, group of of, of uh, clinical activities. Um, and I think what what that did was super important because it. it helped to, if I can put it in a clumsy way, sort of psychologize the criminal law's notion of responsibility. I don't really think until the late 19th century, the criminal trial was set up, either in terms of its rules or its institutional framework, as a way of trying to investigate the state of mind of an individual. Um, but I think that uh, gradually and you know that that the idea that that was the central role of the criminal trial does start to come in and really becomes by the middle of the 20th century a, a sort of paradigm notion of what a criminal trial is, is for. And I think that uh, although it wasn't the only uh, um, factor, the growth of um, uh, the, the sorts of understandings of what it is to be a human being that came and and to either have or lack capacity for one's uh, actions that, that were being elaborated in part by psychiatric medicine uh, were, was, was a very important part of that movement and a very good example of how um, 
ideas and institutional developments in the medical profession uh, really intersect with one another. Yeah, I think that's interesting um, because I think sometimes they kind of, they go together and they work well together. And then at other times there's, there can be a conflict between how lawyers and judges interpret medical evidence and how um, psychiatrists and the medical profession um how much certainty they can deliver, whereas in criminal law we're looking for kind of a, a, a kind of dichotomous outcome like guilty or not guilty, whereas the medical yes. profession is kind of it's never going to be certain. So I That's think right. it's interesting how these mesh together um, and how the criminal law has had to adapt and how far it has adapted and the extent to which it hasn't been able to accommodate all the time. And and so there is this change notion of responsibility, um, which comes back, I think, to your categories of capacity, character, outcome and risk and how these go together and can exist alongside each other or in a tension as well at the same time. So what the criminal, what the criminal process is doing is sort of recoding that uh, information that's coming in from other uh, discourses and professions like the medical profession via expert testimony, but using it to produce a, a binary legal coding of, of guilty or not guilty, responsibility or not responsibility. Um, and um, so that there is something very uh, distinctive that is going on with legal doctrinal argument. I'm not at all resisting uh, that uh, that uh, insight in the book, but I am um, really uh, insistent that nonetheless all that information uh, and from the social world plus the institutions uh, through which um, these communications are happening in the legal system uh, are really crucial to the, the, the development of criminal law. Yeah, and I that goes towards, I think, your third chapter in the book talking about interests um, and there being interests that influence the criminal law and its development and, of course, the notion of responsibility. Um, break it down into three sections and I'm wondering if you can talk about each. Um, firstly, you talk about how interests have shaped the notion of strict liability and also corporate responsibility. Um, can you explain what this means? Um, I'll, I'll just kind of finish the question actually. And you also talk about how theft has changed over time. And actually, you addressed this earlier about the politicization of law. But if you could talk, begin by talking about how um, interests have shaped the evolution of strict liability and corporate responsibility, that'd be great. Right. So um, there's a lot of very, very good socio-legal and historical work on the development of uh, strict liability offences in the 19th century in England. Uh, where it's very obvious that they were a key way in which um, industrial production and, and urbanization were being regulated. So you have this huge development going on in England, uh, in particular industrialized quite early, that implied quite a lot of urbanization. There was a huge challenge for the state to organize health and safety, labor standards, these, these sorts of very basic things. And the criminal law became one of the sort of go-to tools. And there was a big debate about how long that had been going on for. There was quite a lot of 
quote, as we would call it today, regulatory legislation in the 18th century too. But it definitely got a new spin with the development of the urbanized and industrial economy. Um, um, but the, the argument that I then draw on, which is originally a, a Marxian argument, but it's been developed in interesting ways by lots of criminal law scholars, uh, is that um, interestingly, we, we might think of um, this, this uh, development of regulatory uh, strict liability offences as a sort of, um, in a way, rebalancing power after all, a lot of the people or organizations who were uh, subject to this kind of criminalization would have been firms, employers, and so on, collectivities of one kind or another who we would typically think of as being uh, more uh, powerful and also standing to gain quite a lot from these uh, economic developments. But um, the other thought, and this comes back really to the sort of legitimating role of criminal law, is that one of the things that is going on with this uh, pr proliferation of strict liability offences in the 19th century has to do actually with kind of legitimising that distribution of power uh, by saying implicitly, well, we are holding you to a certain standard of, uh, you know, decent outcomes in terms of safety, health, licensing, and so on, um, as a basis for uh, your having this kind of autonomy and power. So that seen from that point of view, uh, the regulatory offences aren't just um, about regulating uh, dangerous activities in the emerging industrial economy and the intensely uh, overcrowded urban spaces that were developing, but it's also about legitimizing a certain new phase of capitalist development. And that, that's an argument which I draw on in the book and which has been elaborated very well by my colleague, Alan Norrie. And I think that uh, links to your argument in regards to theft as well um, and how the changing nature of the law of theft reflects back the social distribution of wealth and the political uh, and how it's changed over time, especially in relation to how capitalism has developed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I think I think the, um, the, the really there's an absolutely marvelous, uh, quite old now piece of scholarship that I draw on here by the American scholar George. Fletcher, who wrote a book called Rethinking Criminal Law back in the 1970s, and he drew a distinction between what he called manifest and subjective criminality. And the idea of manifest criminality is, is just, you know, you can you know when something is a crime because you can just recognise it. And and his argument was that if you look at the early law of theft, it's really all about um, recognising. Um, it, it, it's all about physical taking that can be very easily recognized. We're not investigating the, uh, the, um, the mental or psychological, let alone quasi-moral responsibility of the individual. Um, and indeed, in the pre-modern era, the criminal law was very much about protecting property holdings, uh, which were, of course, even more unequally distributed then than they are now. Um, as we move into a more individualistic, democratized world from the 19th century on and through into the 20th century, um, 
one of the sort of founding ideologies of that democratic development is that, you know, of individualism is that everybody has the opportunity to have property rights, even women from the late 19th century. Uh, and um, that goes with a change in the way we think about theft, which is that since it's not now just about recognizing certain kinds of um, very class-based expropriation, but in, in, implicitly and much more um, uh, you know, in principle evenly uh, distributed uh, risk, if you like, uh, we move here as well to the notion of sort of subjective criminality, the idea that ultimately the uh, test of whether someone has stolen or not is not whether, you know, they've got goods that you don't think they, they look as though they shouldn't have, but whether they were dishonest in doing so, whether they intended to deprive another person. Um, and that, um, so that's what legitimizes the, the, the law of theft. Um, does that answer? Does that help? Yeah, it does. Yeah. You know, it really does. Um, and, of course, George Fletcher's book is and his work is so great. Um, so it's interesting um, I, I liked hearing your explanation. It kind of, uh, I'll be honest, it breaks it down for me. It makes it a bit easier to understand. So thank you. Um, and I, think, I, think I can't. It's, it's really interesting in terms of the kinds of evidence that becomes salient in these cases. And, and the, this, this idea that it all turns on honesty, which has, is, is really, has become really extremely true, certainly in English criminal law through the 20th century, it's very interesting because um, it, it, it gives us a little glimpse into the way in which the criminal law is, is definitely trying to hold together some of the tensions that arguably um, surround uh, claims of legitimacy in a capitalist economy in which we know that actually property is massively unevenly distributed and the, what's more, that the, the, the boundaries between honesty and or rather dishonesty and you know, cunning enterprise are extremely thin. And that is a real tension that criminal law has to manage. Yeah, it is interesting because a lot of it is almost false. You know, um, you know, we kind of attribute value to things like intellectual property, which obviously it has value, but in um, criminal law kind of, puts, I guess, more value in a way into these kind of almost myths that, um, you know, it's different to a plot of land, something that you can see and hold. Um, and it's so it's interesting then how it's changed over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I can't help picking up when you mentioned that even women were able to um, own property at, at some stage and, um, because I know a lot of your work has been on gender and in this book you talk a bit about how responsibility is and can be um, gendered historically um, especially. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yes, absolutely. So, so maybe I can just talk a little bit about the book I wrote immediately before this book, which yeah. is like a sort of companion book to it. And it's, there's always a bit of... Um, serendipity to how one comes to write, write things. But I, I, as I told you at the beginning of the interview, I started work in this field really about 20 years ago. 
And I was just getting into doing this work on responsibility when I was actually offered the papers to write a biography of, of H.L.A. Hart, famous legal philosopher. And I, I ran the two projects together for a while, but it was quite hard to do that. And in the end, I set this project aside, the criminal law project, and wrote the biography. And when I came back to the... Um, my responsibility project, I, I felt that I needed to sort of read my way back into it. And um, we're getting to gender, by the way. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's interesting. <laughs> and, uh, I knew, I was already very interested in this big social debate, cultural debate in 18th century essays and plays about the notion of character and how important the notion of character was in uh, in how people read each other. And um, so I thought what I would do is uh, spend my summer holiday that year reading lots of 18th century novels because I knew that there was also a debate about character in the realist novels of the 18th century. And I was um, reading my way through this literature when I was invited to do a lecture for a friend of mine who'd just become the first woman dean at Toronto Law School on International Women's Day, and she said, I'd really like you to talk on uh, you know, a gender-related theme. And I said, well, I'm not working on gender at the moment. She said, oh, you can come up with something. And as luck would have it, my next, uh, the next novel in my pile was Daniel Defoe's novel, Mole Flanders. And mm-hmm. I read Mole Flanders, which is the tale of a swashbuckling, working-class, sexually adventurous, uh, recidivist thief. Um, and she's the heroine of a novel. And I, I found myself thinking, what happened to Mole Flanders? Because by the time we get to the end of the 18th century, all the uh, heroines are you know, middle class, polite, and very, 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 very well behaved. Um, and then if you get to the end of the 19th century, I, I sort of thought of Tess of the D'Urbervilles, who does... Uh, you know, exerts some agency and independence and is, you know, very, very harshly punished for it. And so I began to think that that disappearance of a sort of very agentic offender, uh, female offender, as, you know, a possible heroine of a novel, told us something quite profound about what was happening uh, to gender relations in that 200-year period, uh, but also might well give us some insights into what was happening in the criminal law, because strangely enough, as you probably know, uh, one of the very few things that is almost universally true of criminal justice systems is that um, they uh, identify women as offenders to a very, very minor degree. So so in most systems today, women remain only something like 5 to 10% of uh, uh, those convicted of, of the most serious crimes. Uh, but funny enough, in, uh, just around the time that Defoe was writing Royal Flanders, which was on the cusp of the 17th to 18th centuries, uh, there was actually uh, the Old Bailey, which is the main criminal court in London, for several of those years, tried more women for theft than it tried men. Um, so I started to think that there might be something, an, an analogy, as it were, between the, the, the disappearance of the female offender from the polite realist novel uh, and the relative disappearance of women from the criminal courts. 
And that resulted in a book called Women, Crime and Character. And essentially what I argued in that book, using a whole uh, array, actually, of cultural resources as, as well as novels, plus a, a lot of old cases, case law over that period, and uh, obviously what was happening in legislation and, and as well. Um, I argued that in, in some ways um, that predominant way of thinking about responsibility in terms of character in the 18th century was um, in a way more conducive to thinking of women as, as all criminal subjects, if you, if you, am I putting it in that way, um, in the sense that although obviously uh, notions of bad character would be highly gendered, uh, nonetheless, you could come up with uh, distinctively female gendered notions of bad character and um, male gendered notions of bad character. There's no problem about thinking about women as having bad character. It's been something that has been done with great efficiency over most of the course of human history. Um, what then happens as uh, capacity and a more psychologized, particularly capacity, uh, agency, and the, the power to understand and control one's behavior, start to become a more dominant way of our thinking about what makes people responsible, and then gradually, slowly, we start institutionalizing that in the criminal justice system. This happens at just the same time as women socially are actually being more and more disciplined, particularly um, through uh, forms of sexual discipline, discipline of sexual behavior, discipline, high discipline of comportment as a sort of the emergence of a, a standards of bourgeois morality um, and the, the, the idea of a sort of what, what, if you want to count as a, an emerging bourgeois respectable man who's pushing up through to this, this new class of merchants and then industrialists, not the, the new people who are pushing for political power, not the old landed people, but the new middle, you know, what will become in time middle classes. Uh, one of their marks of respectability is having a very, very well-disciplined wife. And things really get, I think, a lot worse for women uh, in terms of their power to exercise their own agency and have their social agency recognized um, publicly during the late 18th and particularly the 19th centuries. And I think that's reflected in the criminal law. So in a way, women, crime and character hold the female gender side of, of this long development from character to capacity uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. And one thing I sort of slightly regret about the the last book is that, in a sense, because I've done this book specifically uh, thinking about women, I, I feel that gender probably uh, drops out of my analytic view in this latest book a little bit more than it than it should have done. It's a very it was a very it's a very interesting lesson and how as to how hard it is to hold in one's head the whole time um, frames of reading law as a, an institution, as a social practice, as a set of doctrines, which are in some ways um, counter-cultural, reading against grain. You know, to read law in a gendered way is to try to attend to something that we know is there in the way law works, but which is not announced on the surface of law. It's a, it's a very typical sort of critical move in scholarship, and it takes 
an enormous amount of effort and attention. And I had a lot of plate spinning in this book, and I think maybe the gender plate got a little bit lost. But it's still really interesting. Um, and what I, I loved in, in this book and what you've just talked about now is how you do make references to literature and you use literature to look at you know, what we value as a culture and what we, how we think of women. Um, in this book, you talk about how we think of madness as well and, you know, insanity, um, and mental health issues. I mean, it, it sounds like a fabulous summer when you're reading, um, all of this 18th century literature. Um, it was. <laughs> yeah, it, it's great. And I, I loved when I was reading, um, in search of criminal responsibility, ideas, interests, and institutions. How you how you did make reference to this i the concepts of insanity and madness. For example, you talk about Jekyll and Hyde and similar um, books. It was great just um, seeing how the criminal law reflects back, you know, what is in literature. But you, they they go together, like they walk together. It's not we can't just analyze. The doctrine, so for example, the McNaughton defence, that can't be removed from the wider context. And I do think you captured that, captured that, especially in relation to madness. And you know what you've just talked about now in terms of the kind of medicalization of women and their criminality. Yeah. Um, and I think we we still see that today. Um, you know, in, in some crimes, for example, like infanticide, that women can be found guilty of, but not men. Um, you know, women are mad, but men are bad. I think to I think Perhaps it's oversimplify it. I, I quite agree with you. I think it's quite remarkable how persistent these associations and stereotypes have been. And in some ways, so I, uh, a couple of years ago, I did a lecture at the British Academy in which I brought the women crime and character analysis up through the 20th century, uh, which was incredibly difficult to do because there are just so many cultural media now. You know, it's not just novels in the second half of the 20th century. It's also films and TV shows. And so, you know, it, it's a much harder thing to do with any kind of rigor in your sampling or uh, and so on. But, but um, nonetheless, I think I made a, a fairly good case for the fact that in some ways, some of these uh, stereotypes have become even more pernicious and... Um, there's almost in some of the the novels and um, even including very recent novels, almost a um, a, a way in which uh, women are uh, being sort of blamed for their own victimisation. And I think I think that you know that there is absolutely no way in which gender issues in criminal law have got any better. If anything, they you know they just change their shape. There is, there's a, a huge need for uh, feminist work on criminal law. Mm. And I think while it's not the main topic of this book, you do capture these changed notions of resp responsibility um, over time and you can't escape the gendered notion of that. And I do think you capture it even if, yeah, it's not the main topic. Um, very kind of you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Um, and so finally, just bringing all of these uh the ideas, interests, the institutions together. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the implications for legal theory and scholarship are um, about, you know, your history of responsibility and also the changing notion of responsibility? 
Well, I think I think the main implication for legal scholarship, for legal theory, the implication is that um, you know we we a lot of legal theory has been, in my view, too um, too fixated on coming up with very coherent account of what criminal law is all about and being not very attentive to the um, complexity and sometimes, as you put it, the tensions in the way in which criminal law ideas are organized and institutionalized. Um, and I, so I, I like to think of this as a very much a sort of social constructionist approach to legal theory. It's very much not a form of realism or idealism. It's a way of saying, you know, when we're doing legal theory, we're doing a theory of a very complex phenomenon. And we have to think all the time reflexively about what the criteria of accountability are between that phenomenon, or those phenomena, those practices, and our theorization. And I think a lot of criminal law theory in particular, but I think it's true of tort theory and any kind of applied legal theory, is often very quick to just marginalize and stop talking about the aspects of the actual phenomena out there in the legal system, um, which don't fit their model. And in criminal law, the obvious long-standing example is the, the whole terrain of regulatory offences, which for many, many years were just sort of put in a last chapter or regarded as a kind of exception to the general principles of criminal law that was a bit embarrassing and we shouldn't talk about it too much. Um, and so I, I think that that... that isn't pleasing to some of the more philosophical kinds of legal theorists because um, there are real criteria of a sort of aesthetics of coherence and uh, in and, and also sometimes very sort of moralized principles at work and what uh, some of those theorists see as an appealing theory. But I, I think it's super important myself to be constantly and reflexively moving back and forth between the phenomena and our theory and being very self-critical about what those criteria of accountability are. So what, what does it mean exactly to say my theory is a theory of criminal law uh, if it doesn't say anything about a very big part of the terrain of criminal law, if it marginalizes strict liability or guilty pleas as an institutional arrangement? That would be another good example. I mean, the, the huge uh, preponderance of the guilty plea as an institutional phenomenon in criminal justice systems is a central part of how they work. We can't theorize it away. We may not like it. We may have criticisms of it. But if we want to understand how criminal law works, what its meaning is in society, we, we have to have the guilty plea as part of our account. Uh, those are the, the implications for legal theory. And for legal scholarship, I think, it does mean that, that having, you know, a, a historical perspectives are very useful because they help us to look afresh at things that we sometimes take for granted. And I think the same is true, actually, for comparative scholarship. And I think it, it, it does also imply that, that socio-legal insights aren't just a sort of exotic, optional extra. They're really very central to the whole way in which legal scholarship ought to uh, proceed.
Yeah, I think those are very wise words, both in terms of theory, reminding ourselves to be self-critical of the theory that we're coming up with and reflecting back about, you know, what it actually means and how it plays out. You talk in your book about the difference between law in the books and law in action. Um, so I think, yeah, being self-critical and also then, again, in terms of scholarship, always looking afresh. I think that's so important and it's, you know, it's so easy to kind of get stuck in institutions and ideas um, and interests that have always been and see them as justifications in themselves as neutral when that's, I don't think that's always the case. Um, and Nicola, I've taken up a lot of your time now, so, and I'm very grateful for it. Can I just ask you before you go, what you're working on now? Well, very sweetly, I have, I have a couple of projects. Um, I, I work actually with, with my husband, David Softus, who's a political scientist, uh, on the comparative political economy of crime and punishment. So roughly speaking, why, why do countries have such different patterns of crime and punishment and how does that relate to the way their political, economic and social systems work? And we've, well, I wrote a book about that about 15 years ago and I'm now working with David on a series of papers, uh, particularly on why America is such an outlier as compared with other uh, liberal market countries, capitalist countries with advanced democracies. Um, and um, I also work with a, a philosopher and psychotherapist called Hannah Pickard, who's at Johns Hopkins University, um, on um, how we might rethink uh, various aspects of the criminal justice system in terms not of blame, uh, but in other words, in, in ways that would not would distance the affective kind of blaming and stigmatization, which we know to be so uh, inimical to reintegration of offenders, uh, and even to see if we can think of ways of redesigning the criminal justice system uh, in order to um, uh, facilitate what we might call institutional counterparts of forgiveness. So those are two broad projects, and then, of course, I... I have a wonderful time engaging with other people's work. And going back to what we were saying about feminist uh, theory, I've just written a review of Nari Nassim's wonderful new book, Criminal Law and the Man Problem, uh, and um, also uh, uh, you were asking particularly about the, the medical, uh, the medicalisation of women. I've engaged a lot recently with the work of a very interesting young Australian scholar called Arlie Lofman who wrote, wrote a wonderful book called Manifest Madness. So, you know, I see my own work is very, very much in dialogue with and inspired by lots of other people's work. It's not an individual process, really. They all sound very interesting projects, and it sounds like you're going to be very busy. Um, so once again, thank you, Nicola, for your time. Um, Nicola Lacey's book is In Search of Criminal Responsibility, Ideas, Interests and Institutions. It's published by Oxford University Press. Um, and I can honestly say I really recommend it for anyone who's interested in law, philosophy, history of criminal law, um, and, of course, criminal law in particular. Um, thank you so much for your time, Nicola. It's a great pleasure, Jane. Thank you. Thank you.